Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you to join us in South Florida on April 6th for uh, a live taping of the Commentary Magazine podcast. I'll be there. Abe will be there. Noah will be there. Christine will be there. We'll have special guests. Uh, it's a, it's an exciting event. We did one in New York in 2018 or 2019 that was enormously successful and a lot of fun. Um, if you are in or around South Florida or want an excuse to take a nice uh, trip that week, um, please join us. You can find out more at commentary.org slash live podcast. That's commentary.org slash live podcast, April 6th, late afternoon, Palm Beach, Florida. And those panelists right here, right now, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, I made the mistake of saying just before we started that, um, you know, I wasn't quite sure uh, <clears throat> where to begin uh, with the uh, Ukraine story because, like, there was no fresh, there was no real news. Like, everything is still sort of like... Uh, in it's like it's a coming everything is coming and uh noah uh acted like i was a crazy person because there's an immense amount of news so i'm now turning the floor to no over to noah to explain the immense amount of news yeah there's an exquisite amount of news first of all russia has changed uh tactics uh, <clears throat> people who've studied russian military doctrine have been positively confounded by how moscow has approached this campaign by um, we can only assume that by not committing all its forces, not putting heavy artillery forward, uh, softening the ground ahead of an advance of mechanized infantry tanks supported by mobile infantry, um, that that wasn't happening because they had anticipated a very quick victory, uh, want to occupy the country, pacify the country, and to level the ground would make that infinitely more difficult, and that resulted in a in a stalemate to the point where Ukraine was experiencing quite a lot of profound victories complemented by um, Russia's apparent neglect of its tactical and logistical preparations for uh, an invasion with a long tail. So they've changed tactics. And what we saw yesterday was a significant amount of artillery um, uh, in population centers, particularly in the city of Kharkiv, which is in the uh, northeast of the country bordering Russia. Um, we saw overnight uh, a horrific uh, missile a strike on uh, government facilities in the very center of Kharkiv, uh, killing civilians, obviously quite a few. Um, but we're targeting civilian infrastructure now. We're targeting civilian population centers and experiencing some uh, significant... We're not. We're not. Well, Russia is. The Russians are. Obviously. If, if you're listening and you think we're a combatant in this war, we're not, just to let you know. Um, and then we saw uh, Russia achieve one of its first and only strategic victories unconfirmed, but appears to be legitimate uh, in the establishment of uh, a land bridge between Russia proper all the way to the, um, the Crimean Peninsula, which would entail the sacking of cities like uh, Melitopol, which fell a couple of days ago, and Mariupol, which is a, a very big port on the Sea of Azov, from which they can introduce uh, more maritime assets and um, Russian Marines and heavy equipment to uh, augment the advance in the South. The South, the advance in the South has been pretty effective. Likewise, we've seen um, the Western response only intensify over the course of yesterday um, from 
Western nations involving economic warfare and profound economic sanctions, some of which are happening organically. We're not seeing uh, interest, you know, very significant sanctions on the energy sector from any Western government, but we are seeing energy producers dis disinvest, remove themselves from investments in uh, Russian energy deposits, which is interesting. And then lastly, we are beginning to see some lawmakers embrace a profoundly stupid idea uh, of uh, intervening directly in this conflict in the form of a no-fly zone. That's an emotional response to a very emotional moment. Um, but it is a very emotional moment. And I was just watching um, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the uh, Ukrainian president, deliver an address to the uh, European Parliament, where for the second time since this conflict happened, the interpreter broke down in tears can't interpret what he's hearing because he is so emotionally distraught. There's no theory of war, no theory of statecraft, where anybody in an academic sense would view emotionality as a tangible condition that affects how nations behave. But you can't discount that in this case. I think we've seen enough reporting to suggest that the European response, which has been so robust, has been a function of Zelensky's heart-rending um, appeals to the to the world uh, and his very valiant what might be last stand in the face of a naked land grab in Europe. Um, I, I don't think you can take that out of the equation. And it's certainly influencing people like uh, Senator Ricker, who is saying that we need to intervene directly in this conflict. That's not a, a, a considered response. OK, um, so we it's have an emotional one and one that we can't, I think, just take off the table as a, as a really um, profound motivating factor for Western nations watching this. Look, we have two we have two Republican office holders in Washington, one in the one in the House and one, one in the Senate who have floated the no fly zone idea. Now, let's we should explain what that means is that we would essentially declare uh, that uh, the airspace over. Uh, Ukraine, uh, we were protecting the airspace over Ukraine and that we would not allow uh, Russian aircraft into the space, meaning that we would then theoretically shoot down any Russian aircraft that came into the space, which would mean that we would be effectively at war with Russia, which is why it's a dangerous idea. That's two out of, you know, uh, one senator out of 50 and one um, now very uh, unusual Republican congressman out of 213 Republican congressmen. So I would not say that this is a mad <laughs> rush toward the no-fly zone. And I notice also uh, that, um, you know, uh, again, not to sort of focus obsessively over the NatCons, but there is this um, idea being peddled that, um, you know, there's a mad rush to war with Russia. And that, you know, we're, we're being manipulated by things like the emotionality of the of the translator and pictures of the interpreter and pictures that look so terrible. And we need to we need to be sober and sober and reflective because we're, we're being hypnotized by the neocons into, you know, into committing to war. This is just, you know, infamous slander. It's actually not true. If you've been listening to this podcast, this is like we are the. I don't know, signature neoconservative publication in the United States, if not the world. And um, and I, I don't exactly think that we have been triumphantly uh, banging the drums for, you know, all all out warfare against Russia and have been very nervous about everything that's going on here. Uh, but it's very convenient for them because, of course, of what they can say is there are two choices, one of which is some kind of weird capitulation 
uh, to Russia, even though Russia's bad, it's bad. And, you know, Rod Dreher saying, you know, like I, you know, I, I wish he, you know, would be taken up to heaven and scolded by God, which is really nice. Cause you know, guess what? That's not the way the world works. We all wish that things happened like that to bad people. And, um, and, you know, the leave her to heaven strategy is not, is not one of nations can, 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 can adopt. It's just a dodge. But, um, I think even more important is this idea that, you know, there it's this classic thing. Obama did it. People always do it, that there there's a binary choice, right? Which is like all out war or some version of, of, uh, you know, capitulation or something like that. And obviously what's going on here is something very much in the middle, which is that we are waging economic, economic wars being waged on Russia. Um, and as I said yesterday, that would be acknowledged in the, sort of inter international law as war, as acts of war. The blockades, the economic blockades we're putting on Russia are fundamentally acts of war. And indeed, the French foreign minister, I believe, said we are in all-out war with Russia yesterday. Um, but I don't know. The thing that I want to bring up is that things change very, very, very fast. And um, if we end up seeing pictures over the next week of full-size, straight, you know, full-on strafing, of civilians in gigantic large cities uh the idea that the american population might become increasingly favorably disposed towards some form of engagement at least to spare them the monstrous you know acts of uh, monstrous war crimes that are being committed that we're now going to be able to see in real time for pretty much that for the first time that part of the of this conflict is is sort of fascinating. Um, the information war, which the Ukrainians are winning in a way that's very new. I mean, the use of social media by the leadership, by Zelensky in particular, but also by members of the Ukrainian parliament, they are making a very human call for for uh, help and relief. In, in the very images they use. So you notice Zelensky is never, he's rarely, he's not wearing a uniform. He's not in any formal settings. He's usually wearing a t-shirt with the other people who he's who he's uh, grouped with and, and talking to, he talks directly to the camera. There, there are these images of civilians posted on social media and members of parliament who have been given AK-47s or other weapons to defend themselves and they're pictured in their homes. Again, not in uniform, not in formal settings. And the message that's sent uh, what, either intentionally, I think in some cases with the leadership or unintentionally with just average citizens is that we are going to defend our homes. We are not soldiers, but we are willing to stand and defend our homes against an invader. And all the images you see from Russia are soldiers, are tanks, are, are cluster bomb like uh, attacks on apartment buildings and playgrounds and, and civilian areas. So that part of this conflict has been very moving in a way that's not really emotional, but is but is just a human story that they're telling through social media in a way that in previous wars we've never quite seen. But I mean, Abe, I so, want to point I want well, to point one thing out and ask you to respond to it, which is that Noah said, you know, the you've never seen the, the effect of of that interpreter, you know, crying for the second time. You know, there different is a single, two different ones, that's right. There is a single photograph from 1940 that effectively helped change the American, uh, the American view of, of our involvement, of our potential involvement in World War II. Single photograph, which was this <clears throat> iconic picture. Uh, it was also in a newsreel of, a, of an elderly French man standing on, you know, uh, on the Champs Elysees, as the as the German tanks are rolling through, sobbing. 
I mean, you've seen the picture, even if you can't you know, uh, envision it from the way I'm talking about it. Um, uh, that was seen across the world and it was seen in every, you know, was seen by everybody in America. And it, it, it's said to have had a very significant impact on American public opinion, because when you can crystallize a moment <laughs> like that uh, with an indelible image, it can, in fact, have an enormous and outsized impact, emotional impact. Without the emotional impact, it's very hard to get people to say we should make sacrifices to help those people. It's and in the just, case yeah. in the case of World War II, you're talking about one still black and white image. The yeah. media landscape today is such that it's round the clock, sight and sound, moving images, you know, uh, listening to Zelensky in real time, watching him in real time, watching uh, the EU react to, uh, to that same uh, emotional plea. They, they, they gave him a standing ovation. Um, I think it's inevitable. I think it was inevitable that we would start talking about at least some of us, some 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 Americans and, and uh, leaders would start talking about getting more directly involved. I'm not saying I advocated. I'm just saying I, I, I had a hunch that this is where it was heading. At the same time, there is a sort of um, kind of mirror image emotional response, which is to say, well, no matter what happens, Putin's already lost, um, which I think is uh, also not exactly the right way to look at it. This idea that because Zelensky has won the emotional battle, has won the optics war. Optics usually something you sort of look down upon as kind of cosmetic. I don't mean it in that case, but he's 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 because he's sort of commanded our attention and and our sympathies. Uh, and Putin has lost them entirely. Um, that whatever else happens, uh, Putin has lost. And I think that's also not the right way to look at it. For Putin to lose, he has to lose. Um, if he if he ends up with with Ukraine and he ends up with, and if and I agree with Noah about about having to give Putin some off ramps to deescalate here. Um, but if 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 the off ramps are too advantageous to him, he doesn't lose. So he has not lost purely because everyone hates him. Well, <clears throat> part of the strategy of uh, off ramps isn't just giving you, a, a, as Sun Tzu would say, a golden bridge to evacuate over. It's also to convince you that your strategic objectives are out of reach. Um, <clears throat> he can't, he must be convinced of his own failure to achieve those. And I frankly don't see how he achieves those strategic objectives, which we understand to be, and we're guessing, we understand to be <clears throat> the capture of the country, the uh, pacification of resistance, the replacement of the government with a stable um, eastward aligned regime in Kiev and Ukraine whole and intact. How does that happen? I well, don't see you know that <laughs> happening. And second, just briefly on this to this point, tactically, are our contributions to making sure that Putin doesn't achieve those strategic victories so that he can take the off ramp he's offered um, is to continue to do what we're doing insofar as introducing defensive weaponry into the Ukrainian theater. If you scratch a nationalist hard enough, who's like, well, we can't get NATO involved. We can't have combat operations supported from NATO, which all of us, I think, agree with. I certainly do. Um, you scratch them a little bit and then they get really queasy about the idea of supporting Ukrainian resistance because that too is provocative. So generally they really don't wanna do anything at all. 
than just sacrifice Ukraine to this nationalistic imperial idea of 19th century geopolitics where you can consign a people to a sphere of influence just because you have the preponderant power to do so. Um, that's frankly an unrealistic view of how the world works today. Well, I mean, um, I think we're also all working on this sped up social media time. And, and, and that, that's something else to be cautious about. I mean, on the one hand, it changes everything that there is this sort of instantaneous communication of things that are going on. And we're probably going to see images and experience things that no one's ever seen from war before that will, you know, horrify uh, the mind um, for anybody who hasn't lived through them directly. But social media time is evanescent also and people you know like people move on i know it doesn't never feels like in the middle of a social media frenzy that it's ever going to end or people are going to move on but at some point people forget whether the dress was blue and you know blue and brown or 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 green and gray or whatever it was supposed to be and they go on to the next thing and, you know, there'll be a, a, a cop will shoot somebody, uh, you know, on Friday or something bad will happen here. Or there'll be a school, shoot, whatever. And people here could the, the, the amount of focus that is being placed on this by the general public could shift very fast. And we could be in a different reality in which it really is going to be what wars and these sorts of things always are, which is a matter of discussion at the highest levels of government involving, you know, involving hard choices being made by people in power uh, with some with some involvement of the body politic and its opinions, which I don't think are going to shift. They're not going to like turn toward Putin, but the intensity is unlikely to last and everybody needs to prepare for that. Putin is the worst person in the world now, but, you know, some celebrity who says something racist could be the worst person in the world next Monday. Well, and, and the algorithmically driven uh, platforms in, in a weird way increase a kind of digital fog of war. So we've already seen this with Ukraine where information comes out and it's and it's extremely uh, emotionally laden immediacy. The, the, the Ukrainian soldiers on that island under siege who basically said, go F yourselves to the to the Russian warship. And, and it was reported all over social media that they were all killed. But in fact, it turns out, looks like some of them survived and were taken prisoner. And, and so when you have these backtracks, uh, it's very difficult to correct the social media feed in real time. And it does, in fact, fuel suspicion and and sometimes conspiracy theories on the part of those who, when they see a, a different story, think, well, wait a minute, who was were they lying to me the first time? Was that propaganda? Should I really believe anything? There's a there's a strange kind of impact on people's ability to process this information when it comes at them quickly and then needs to be corrected, but isn't in a standard way. So there's a kind of digital fog of war that goes on in these moments as well that can be long-term uh, lead to misinformation and people not understanding how conflict is really happening. I agree the heightened emotions will fade, <clears throat> but the, uh, the, the war will rage on in a way that cannot be ignored. Already we have 600,000 refugees in the European Union. It took 16 months for the Syria, 16 months, it took years, I'm sorry, many years for the Syria conflict to produce that many refugees in Europe, which had a profoundly destabilizing effect on European politics. Estimates are we'll, we'll see roughly five to seven million Ukrainian refugees in Western Europe. That's that's a side that's like the city, the entire city of New York descending on Poland and Hungary and Bulgaria and Germany. It will have a very destabilizing effect. Like you said, oh, John, if yeah. this war continues as it as it is going to continue, this change in tactics heralds a profound bloodletting on the continent. 
where we could see 5,000 dead civilians per week. And this will continue for weeks. Combat operations will go on for weeks before we even get to a stage at which we're talking about an insurgency and pacifying the cities. Um, so yeah, I just don't see this. I see the heightened emotions fading perhaps, but certainly not the conflict itself oh. fading from the front pages, not anytime oh. in the next month, oh, in no, two months. In no in no way, uh, in no way. I'm just saying that um, there is a kind of, again, I wouldn't call it a rational exuberance, but I would say there is a kind of, um, I don't know, a flight to certainty, you know, Ukraine good, Russia bad, Zelensky hero, Putin villain. You know, there's a kind of, there's a dramatis personae thing that is going on here uh, that seems to make it very easy. Um, for a lot of people, or, you know, certainly in that kind of weird show business way where people are all like, we're with Ukraine, you know, I, I'm putting on that, we're, you know, God bless Zelensky and all that, and it's all great. And then the question is, okay, well, what do you, what, what are you prepared to accept? Uh, well, as what are you prepared to accept as policy to try to put some teeth in your sense that something needs to be done to make sure that the Russians don't overrun and take over Ukraine? And, and I'll tell you this. If the kind of scenario Noah just described just just described uh, does manifest over the next weeks, the, the 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 sense of emotionality we're talking about is going to turn to recrimination and regret and immediately saying we should have done more. Right. Well, you know, there there again, I, as everybody knows, I love I love the historical analogy, right? It's my fake because, you know, how else do you understand? This is unprecedented what's going on. And there aren't that many lessons to be drawn. In other words, like we have a we have a, a you know, a tin pot country trying to take over a country on its board. And the, the thing that makes this entirely different is that that tin pot country has the second largest uh, you know, our ar armory of uh, nuclear weapons uh, on the planet and therefore isn't so tin pot. And so it our ability to sort of uh, do what we think we need to do is very much, you know, uh, hamstrung by by this very uh, serious fact. So that that's new. Like we're in a new <laughs> we're in a new reality where that's concerned. But um, uh, American politics was dominated for several years by in 19 from fr in the early uh, late 40s, early 50s. People sort of don't know this because it all got elided with the McCarthy era and various other things. But by this question of who lost China, how was how did China fall to Mao and the communists? And, you know, there were millions of Americans and millions of people in the West who had grown up in China as the children of missionaries or had relatives who were in China. There were millions of missionaries in China from Britain and France and the United States who were like a lobby, were like a lobby against, you know, anti-communist lobby against the threat being posed by, by Mao and the communists. And when China fell in 1949, the phrase who lost China was, you know, like Black Lives Matter. I mean, it was, it was a phrase on the lips of everybody in America, whether you uh, believed that, you know, someone needed to be blamed for the loss of China or, or not. Um, and and that's the kind of recrimination that we we could face. In other words, like why and and that's the Munich parallel also, which is why didn't we do something to make sure this didn't happen in the first place? And that, of course, is part of what you know people who paid attention and paid attention to foreign policy over the last 
13, 14 years have been warning about, right? I mean, it's um, uh, what's Bob Kagan's phrase, the jungle grows back or the jungle, the jungle grew back. I mean, if you don't prune the jungle, it's going to come back because the world is a place of disorder and decay and, um, and bad men wanting to work their will. And if it isn't kept in check, or if it isn't groomed, if it isn't sort of like, you know, husbanded and groomed and 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 kept in and 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 kept in order, um, something like this or five different examples of this uh, were were going to happen inevitably. We do, you just don't know what they are. Is the problem, and you don't know what when you tend the garden properly. You don't know what you prevented. So then people get you know, uh, complacent and say, well, I don't want to spend money on military readiness. What fun is that? Like, you know, we're, we're no, we're not in danger. Nothing's, nothing's coming at us. Like this is ridiculous. You know, we have, we have a kindergarten we, we could be paying for instead of that. And, and it's a hard argument to win, uh, because again, you don't know what you stopped. You don't know what deterrence deterred when deterrence is successful. You never know. So you because you don't want to find out. And we have now we now know that whatever deterrent policies that we were trying to put in place toward Russia, toward events like this have failed. And, yeah, I think we're going to be going back and looking at it and saying, what did we do wrong? Where did this go wrong? And after World War Two, it was very clear, not even after, like just as it was starting, it was very clear that everything went wrong largely at the Munich conference in 1936, but, uh, but, but not just there on 37. I mean, not just there, but uh, I just want to say um, it's not just a, a sort of um, sober, what did we do wrong, but also an emotional, how could we have let this happen? Well, that's the moral, right? I mean, ultimately it's not just and, and that's in part easier, I think emotionally, because it's not happening to us in an odd way, like, you know, 9-11 happened to us. So, uh, so the, the idea was we were actually, we were the target. We were at risk. We were under threat. There was no domestic opposition to going into Afghanistan. I mean, you know, there was like Susanna Heschel and people wearing burqas thinking that somehow that was going to be a way of protecting Muslim women from American depredation, like Muslim women weren't in greater trouble from the Taliban than they would ever be from, but, you know, kind of leftist, you know, idiot, moral idiocy. Um, but, you know, in this case, like we're not at risk, our people, we're not going to get straight, you know, we're not going to be bombed like Kharkiv. Um, and then that is the question, like, okay, we're not, we, we, you know, we live a comfortable distance away. Here are these people who ended up being on the front lines and, could we have done something? And it's, um, you know, and it's also not Rwanda. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not, it's Europe. You know, Rwanda, there was plenty of emotionality over Rwanda and the genocide in Rwanda, but it was still Rwanda. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the seat of, this wasn't happening like in, 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 in Europe, which is our, which is our friend and our ally and our, 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 you know, the, the source, our, the source of us, you know, it's like our grandparents. So yeah. And strategically valuable terrain. Well, and sorry, of course, East Africa is of no strategic value to the United States or the West. Syria is Syria is the most fought over plot of land in the history of the planet. Right. Eastern Europe is 
Yes. The, the flanks of NATO are strategically important. They should consume us in a way that is is of empirical and tangible and material interest to the United States and the West and its Western allies beyond any emotional appeal. It has nothing to do with any of the people who want to talk about emotionality usually want to talk about it to motivate policymakers to do something that their tangible considerations of American national interests and, and grand strategy would otherwise not compel them to do. Right. Uh, so listen, um, if you are uh, finding this uh, conversation at all illuminating or have been finding our discussions of Ukraine at all illuminating, you got to do yourself a favor and go subscribe to Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast this week. This week, he has on uh, Fred Kagan, uh, who is the uh, director of the Critical Threats Project at the at the American Enterprise Institute and uh, part of the Institute for the Study of War, former uh, professor at West Point, uh, one of the world's foremost scholars of of um, of the modern military, part partial architect of the surge uh, in Iraq, and um, his analysis with Dan Sinor of what is going on in Russia, how how to impose. Uh, the kinds of penalties that the Russians will need to suffer, uh, you know, if if they if they really are to try to in, insist on finding an off ramp or try to find an off ramp for themselves, um, and uh, and 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 how serious how we will know if we, the United States and the West, are truly serious by the nature of the sanctions we impose and how many loopholes are left in them. And of course, this is a big issue that I think we're going to be hearing about this week, uh, particularly with Biden's uh, delivering the State of the Union tonight, which is that he wants to say these are incredibly crippling sanctions. And then there is this question about whether or not he's left a bunch of loopholes in them because he's worried for domestic political reasons about the inflationary effects of the oil and, and uh, of choking off oil, all oil and gas from Russia and what that will do to his and Democrats' political chances in November, not to mention the inflation rate uh, in general. Um, and, and so uh, it's worth exploring that topic. Fred explores that topic with Dan and many other things. It's a fantastic podcast, uh, one of the most um, uh, illuminating that you'll, you'll, you'll hear uh, at this moment. That's Call Me Back with Dan Senor this week with Fred Kagan. It's great. Go to Apple uh, Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts and subscribe today. Um, let's talk a little about Biden's speech tonight, uh, the State of the Union speech tonight, because um, we're told that, uh, you know, they are they are radically overhauling it to take account of of uh, of uh, what's going on here uh, in Ukraine and the foreign policy um, uh, crisis. And it's interesting because you can see how by some in some calculations here, uh, Biden has been delivered, at least on this night, uh, from uh, uh, from a potential disaster if he handles it in the right way. Uh, all the polling over this weekend show that he is at the lowest ebb of his presidency. We have we have uh, the best poll, oddly enough, that he got this weekend was an internal RNC poll that had him at 41%. One poll had him at 37 Somebody else had him at 39 um, Immensely pessimistic readings of the uh, current present and the immediate future. Um, fears about inflation, about crime, and 
all kinds of things. And, you know, he was going to have to deliver a speech in which he was going to try to bluff people into thinking that things weren't terrible and uh, things could have just gotten a lot worse for him and being able to demonstrate seriousness of purpose. And ultimately, the reason that we have a president and the structure that we have, which is that we have a president whose responsibility really is the protection of the American national interest and 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 uh, and being the commander in chief of the armed forces and being in control of our foreign policy, whereas uh, Congress uh, is supposed to really deal with uh, domestic matters and uh, matters of the budget and matters of legislation. Um, uh, this is a real opportunity for him, uh, particularly given the disaster of Afghanistan, to reset his administration as one of seriousness of purpose and 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 real um, uh, real uh, accomplishment, at least over the course of the last two or three weeks, in rallying the West behind uh, Ukraine. Um, do, do, do we think that uh, that he can pull this off? Pull this? It's not going to be a reset, but that that he can somehow uh get the get get a bump or get get the american people more behind him by focusing in a rhetorical way on the threats posed by by russia and what we've learned over the last week and what we need to do to to uh, face this down and what we've learned about our allies and what and what an alliance really is and what it can be if it's run effectively and he could he has reason to make the claim that that in this case, he has actually done a good job over the last month. This is going to be really interesting if they do do this overhaul, because <clears throat> they've been laying the groundwork politically to shift the tone in a direction they've been constitutionally incapable of striking, which is towards optimism. That's the whole impetus behind this mass, new masking guidance, um, which, you know, suddenly the science has changed. You know, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. But they've been, you know, pressuring the CDC to change the, their their metrics that allow them to lift masking guidance. They did so. So this was going to be a celebratory moment for the for the administration to say, you know, we're emerging from the pandemic. The economy is recovering. You know, let's happy days are here again. That's what this was what any first term president needs. But it's certainly what this administration needs. And their base has been so inclined towards pessimism and just being downbeat that they've been playing to it in a way that's politically detrimental to themselves. So they're going to break out of it right now. If they're overhauling it, overhauling this speech now to talk about a, a, the most serious threat to the geopolitical order that's pertained to the last 70 years uh, and materially affects Americans in their pocketbooks. And he's going to have to make the case for why we need to sustain that campaign. It's going to be the most downbeat state of the union I think any of us will have seen in our lifetimes. But isn't it also, I mean, it, it could be, but it could also be an opportunity for someone who's a very savvy politician, which Joe Biden is not, to, but perhaps he has better speechwriters, to say, not to be uh, downbeat, but to say, you know, this is the moment where we show who we really are. We've just been through this, you know, several years of a pandemic. The economy is struggling, but coming back now, we're going to, we're all trying to get back to work. Our kids are back in school. We're doing what we can there. I, you know, I did all my infrastructure stuff. And now we're faced with a geopolitical crisis and we will rise to the occasion. We will do what is right. We will work with our allies. We will, we will basically remind the world what America can do. And even though we've been beaten down by the pandemic, we will rise again. Like you could give an optimistic message, but I agree with Noah, his coalition doesn't want optimism. And in fact, it's been weird to see in the last 48 hours, most of the response to, to Biden's foreign policy uh, right now has been to say, oh, well, it, 
imagine if Trump had been in office right now. I mean, Biden is just so much better than Trump. They're still trapped in this mindset of comparing him to the guy before they can't. They've got to get out of that or he has to break them away from it. He just doesn't do tonally. He doesn't do resolve like he just does. His empathy act is to be, you know, sort of is to be really sad. I don't think and to whisper. Don't forget the whisper. Right. I don't think he can deliver um, uh, any sort of inspiring message. It, no matter the speech that's in front of him, he's an uninspiring presence. And this is especially problematic for him because we've all been marveling at the real thing for the past uh, week or so in Zelensky, right? We see exactly what that looks like, um, what, what, what it takes to, to rally to get to get the world to rally behind you. Um, Biden has absolutely none of that. And again, this is still on the heels of of the Afghanistan withdrawal debacle, turning away from the world. He's still begging Tehran to to come to the table on a nuclear deal. Um, He can't deliver a message that's compartmentalized from absolutely everything else he's doing and that says, we're going to be strong. We're going to be forthright. We're going to defend the free world. I mean, he can try, but he's, it's just so in conflict with what he's been up to and what he's, and what he's trying to accomplish elsewhere. It's also a question of whom he listens to and what the internal emotional dynamic is, not only of the Democratic Party, but of the elites of the Democratic Party. Let me just give you an example. We have a real interesting split if we take a look at COVID, right? We have Democratic blue states that are running for the exits from from COVID hawkishness. New York is about to drop all of its mask mandates. New York City will drop it uh, next Monday. Uh, tomorrow, I think the rest of the state will have the right to drop uh, mask mandates in schools and indoor and all of that. California is doing the same, various other places, not only because the statistics show that it's uh, possible, but because um, I just think they're seeing a kind of uh, we got to do something uh you know their 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 antennae are out and it's saying get the hell out of this get ahead of it uh you know don't don't stop with the we're going to wait another two weeks to see where the numbers are the numbers are good like we're now down to fifty thousand cases in the united states uh you know a day um from you know we were at two hundred and fifty thousand. i don't know six weeks ago or a month ago um, on on Sunday, which granted was a Sunday, we registered 182 deaths from COVID. Uh, yesterday, it was like like 1,000. Um, but a year ago at this time, it was 2,000. So we are, we are clearly, COVID fell off a cliff, right? And uh, Omicron burned through and is now over and Delta is over and this new, a new variant has not popped up as this is, as this has been present. And so it's time to get the hell out of Dodge. However, look, look at the message that the media are sending to the white house about this Washington post, ABC poll headline, Washington post. Most Americans say the coronavirus is not yet under control and support restrictions to try to manage it post-ABC poll finds. That is not what this poll finds. I'm looking at the poll right now. The poll finds 
that if you ask people, is the pandemic somewhat under control, mostly under control, or completely under control, that number is 83%. Somewhat mostly or completely. Mostly or completely is 33%, and somewhat under control is 49%. Not at all under control, 15%. Now, here's what's interesting. So the Post and the ABC, following along the way people do this, say that this shows that Americans still want restrictions. What kind of restrictions? Well, that it doesn't say. Um, what do you think is more important? Trying to control the spread of the coronavirus, even if it means having some restrictions on normal activities or having no restrictions on normal activities, even if it hurts efforts to control the virus. More important to control spread 58 to 35. Okay? That's meaningless because it doesn't say what the restrictions are. It just says you should have some restrictions. And, um, and so, you know, a rational person is to say, yeah, there should be some restrictions. I mean, I, you know, I don't really know what those are exactly. Um, Democrats, 84% of Democrats say it's more important to control the spread. 59% of independents say it's more important to control the spread. Only 32% of Republicans say it's more important to control the spread. But the larger and more important number here is that 83% of Americans think that the virus is somewhat, mostly, or completely under control. How are you going to look at this? This is a Rorschach test yet again for Biden and for Democrats and for Democratic leaders. Democratic leaders close down to the ground are looking at these numbers and saying, we got to get out ahead of this and get out because clearly that number, the we need some restrictions number is shrinking by the day. And, uh, and, and when that number flips and becomes people don't think there should be restrictions, they're going to get really mad at us really fast the way Republicans are mad at us. But Biden is not close to the ground. Senators are not that close to the ground. Uh, Democratic senators are not that close to the ground. And I don't know how they're going to read this and look at it. And it is a very interesting moment because he needs to be able to declare victory. And the Washington Post and the people that it represents are trying to stop him from doing that. On the verge of the on the on the on the verge of the State of the Union, which also with, under but this also sorry to interrupt, but it also undermines they're now undermining their own message about being the party of the science, capital T, capital S, because the CDC is now saying what most Americans are saying in these poll results, which is it's time to move on. It's time to unmask. But you still have I mean, look, I went to a restaurant last night with a friend that was absolutely packed and we we. It was the day before the indoor mask mandate in D.C., which was lifted today. Basically, no one was wearing masks except the poor staff who worked there who had to continue to wear masks. Totally packed. Um, it was great to see a, a, a packed restaurant again after all these years. But this morning, my kids have to wear masks all day at school today because the D.C. government is still insisting kids be masked in schools. They have not changed and updated to the CDC. Why? Because a lot of elite liberal parents in D.C. are still scared and they are slow to to remove that mask mandate. I, I assume it will eventually drop. If not, they're going to have some serious blowback from parents like me. 
but this is a problem. Like they, they are really scared. And, and the same people who have in this household, we believe in science signs. They actually don't. They need that. They still need to cling to something because well, that's of fear. just that's just it. Are they scared of, the, of an infection or are they no. scared of having to tacitly admit through their own behavior that everything they've done for the last two years has been entirely talismanic? The well, latter. you know, but it, I think I think there's a lot to the latter, but it is certainly possible to, for them to say to themselves. And, you know, it's going to be a couple of years before we really know the truth about this as the as the epidemiology becomes clearer over time that you couldn't say, well, the first year was really important. We didn't have vaccines. There was no way to protect against the virus. So we masked, we socially distanced, we did, we did, you know, if we hadn't done that, 2 million people would have died instead of 600,000 or something like that. But then once the vaccines were in place and once, you know, the first wave burned out and before Delta came on, um, that was not true anymore. Like it, it, it didn't work and the, and it was all, it was all ineffectual. And uh, the number as of today that they are claiming that 940,000 people have died uh, from, from COVID in the United States. Now, we already know that according to some studies, 25% of that number at least are people who died with COVID and not from COVID. So that number actually just drops to about 600,000, which is still a horrifying number and is one of the worst things that has ever happened in our lifetimes. All told, in that number, within that number, 940,000 number, the number of Americans zero to 18 who have died from COVID is 847. So did every adult have to wear a mask the first year? Maybe. It may well be that that was a good thing. Have children ever had to wear masks? Probably not. And yes, that, that fact is going to have to be slowly ingested, swallowed, and spat out by the parents who have who embraced not only the masking, but things like when their kid got COVID, putting them in a room and not letting them be with their family while they were sick, because that's what the science said. And shoving meals under the table, you know, shoving meals under the door or whatever, that kind of thing. Um, and it's going to be very hard. It's that is going to be a very hard pull for a lot of people. And that clinging to the neurosis is i think as as you say there is some element of the i i can't allow myself to believe that everything that has gone on here was for no was for no reason there's a lot of that i think it's mostly that frankly uh, honestly uh, at this stage if you're still if you're still failing to reconcile with these contradictions you're emotionally invested in in motivated reasoning I'm hey, sorry, if, 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 well i was just gonna say there's i think there's one possible um sort of frame of mind that we're not considering here um, on the part of the uh, sort of neurotic clingers, um, particularly the parents, which I, which I think is a little more understandable, which is because there have been so many contradictions in the information, because there have been walkbacks and new discovery. Now the, 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 it turns out that the, the youngest age, vaccines aren't as effective as as we were first told um there's a sense of well i don't know what to believe anymore and if i don't know what to believe and i don't know who to trust i'm going to err on the side of total vigilance 
Okay, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot and I really do want to go into this study of the vaccines from five to 11 because I got an 11 year old who, you know, was vaccinated, right? Okay, so the study that has come out says that basically the vaccines are ineffectual, probably because the doses are too small. Why are the doses too small? Because if you increase the dosage, you started potentially triggering side effects uh, that made that that in, that elevated the risk of getting the vaccine. Now, why? What is interesting about this is if you look at the studies, they say, well, but the but the vaccination of of kids five to eleven did succeed in preventing hospitalizations. So you're like, great, he got it. So if he got Omicron, which he didn't, by the way, my son, all the rest of us did. My son did not get it. Um, if he got Omicron, he wasn't going to be hospitalized. Yay. But it turns out, if you dig into the stories, that the numbers of kids 5 to 11 who were hospitalized for Omicron is so tiny. And when I say tiny, I mean nationwide tiny, like 75 cases or some, some is so tiny that the idea that you can extrapolate from percentages of how many of them were vaxxed versus how many of them weren't vaxxed or how many of them had one shot and not two, yeah, blah, 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 that, um, that it, it, there's, no, there's no statistical, there's no statistically valid way to say, in fact, that hospitalizations were prevented by the vaccine. So that basically the vaccine um, is a talisman or a placebo or something like that. It was, it, 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 kids got it, it didn't make them sick. And it did nothing. It didn't keep them from getting Omicron and it didn't keep them from getting hospitalized. And uh, this was all, this, it's not a sham, but in the end it was ineffectual. Whereas the vaccination effect for everybody else was pretty startling, particularly in terms of preventing hospitalization. And if you look at the New York Times story about this, what does it say in the third paragraph? Why are public health officials upset about the fact that this these facts have come out because it's going to in, interfere with people getting their kids vaccinated. The story says that the kids don't need to get vaccinated because the vaccines are ineffectual. They're worried that kids aren't going to get vaccinated with a vaccine that isn't going to help them. Let's, can we, can we, can somebody please uh, help me here? So now vaccination is a thing. It's like um, baptism. If they don't get vaccinated, they're not going to get into heaven. They're going to end up in purgatory like, you know, Virgil in the Divine Comedy. Unbaptized, born before Christ, you know, so he can't get into heaven. Like, is, is that what vaccination has become? It's the anointment. So if you can't, if you don't do it, you're not going to get anointed. What about the vaccination? How are my kids? I think, my kids? Yeah. Anyway. But I, I, look, I'm, I'm just saying this because I, I know parents of all stripes and I know some that are very deeply embedded in the neurotic camp. Um, I think it is has to do with what I said, which is, well, OK, well, what's to say that in three months there's not going to be a new study that says, oh, the. Uh, those vaccine, those vaccine vaccinations were effective after all. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I, because no one knows anything or 
No one knows a sufficient amount. I am going to err on the side of of total vigilance. Well, there's nothing except I'm not recommending except this, except that this isn't just a study. This is basically everybody in New York state, every kid in New York state. This is like, you know, studies are like, you know, 200 people stand in for everybody. This is like tens of thousands of people. Tens of thousands of kids are, 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 have been, it's, it's longitudinal data. It's not, it's not just, you know, a study. Um, it's almost inarguable. That's, that's what's, that's, what's interesting about it. Um, uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it, it's a little harder to, uh, it's a little harder to uh, throw it, throw it out uh, with, uh, you know, with the bathwater in that way or say, yeah, maybe in three months they'll say, that they should be vaccinated and all of that. It's possible, although, you know, of course, the whole thing is if there's a new variant, in any case, uh, the whole everything's going to have to be rewritten. And we're going to literally have to... the only people who care about this are only talking to each other. I don't know but who's I... listening to the CDC anymore outside of Democrats and, and Democratic leaning independents. Well, Democrats make up, you know, they're they're that's why what, this is what we're talking about, John. States. They're trapped in a solipsistic bubble in which they are only arguing with each other. One side is arguing political realities and the other one is posturing morally and with with a, a, a detectable note of mental illness, frankly, cloying special pleading efforts well, to get some sort of engagement from social media, from regular media, ma mainstream media to try to make something of themselves make a make a make a figure of themselves not having anything to do with the science and half the country has already moved on to the point where those same polls that you're citing suggest that the CDC is about as relevant to the lives of these people as uh, I, the, what the Pentagon says it's purely look, what academic do we okay but what do we know what have we learned from this I would say in large bore which is you push the germ button you push the virus button you push the disease button the unclean button the danger button you, you know, you break the glass and you push the emergency button. That's not happened before in our lifetimes. And uh, we are going through a real world test of what the long term effects of that are. The real world test in my experience. Hundreds of millions of people. In my experience has been when CDC lifted mask mandates in May of 2021, they never returned. When mask mandates go away in my school next week, they are never coming back. No matter how many but times they, you but, push that button. But they can come back. That's that's not. where you're wrong. They will not. I will stake my reputation. They will in many parts of the country. I mean, they'll be back here. They'll be back in among Democrat-dominated places. Who are the only people? I repeat. You're in a democratic state. You I'm not in a, in a democratic, democratic area. State. You're in a democratic state. I'm and not in a democratic Murphy, area. And I and and the mask mandates came back from my state, not where I live. Another... Okay, and you're in schools. They never went the away mask, in schools, John. I'm telling you, right. in, in interior mask mandates I, I, were restored after the mask mandates right. were lifted by the CDC, never came back for okay. many places of the state that are not visible to Democrats and Democrats and media. I understand that. And we've this is, you know, we're now we're now getting back and now we're getting into the Sartre, you know, hell is other people, no exit problem, because now we're getting back to the conversation we've been having forever. I'm just saying that I think that the story here is that um uh, people have been permanently disfigured by the psychological or, you know, or dysregulated by the psychological impact of what happened in March of 2020. And, and we're, we're going to be dealing with those consequences for years to come. They're not just going to fade away because 
people were people whose nascent view is that other people uh, pose a threat to them. Uh, you know, who sort of have a fight or flight response, ang anxious, anxiety riddled about other people and all of that were given full the full body awareness that other people were a risk to them and the idea that they'll be able to simply put that stuff that back in and go back to living normally uh once they once that once that was validated um and there was a lot more of them than i think we knew now perhaps. it's not I, I i'm telling you that there are tens of millions perhaps even a hundred million americans yeah. for whom the announcement that mask mandates are going away will be the first time they've heard that mask mandates were even a thing for a year. I don't. That is not true. I, I, do, I understand I do, that. I you really know, do. that is not true because every new this is this remains. I don't care where you live, including in Wyoming or wherever. This has been the main topic of conversation for two and a half years. It's not anymore. And not for some time. Public priorities, John. And these not, polls suggest inflation and geopolitics are now no, supplanting. COVID. No, no, Inflation has long policy. been the chief priority of all voters. Okay, if you went, if you took a microphone and you went around America and you went to every diner in America, a third to half of the conversations would be about COVID. And I swear to you, I believe that to be the case. Some ancillary could be ancillary. Attacking Biden, praising Trump, being upset about this, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But it will all have offshoots from COVID. How's it going? We, you know, we live in a fascist country or we don't, whatever. These are all. COVID well, then you're talking about the long tail, which is something you've been predicting that it has something as an effect similar to the Great Recession. That it's just oh, we haven't even radiation. seen that. Yeah, but we, we haven't. We, that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying psychologically, I'm not just talking politically. Psychologically, there are if you take that 15 percent of people who say we're not safe at all in any way, shape or form, if that number is correct. That's 45 million people in the United States who believe that we are not safe, that nothing has happened to that's roughly to the same population that's unvaccinated, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about 30 million people who are unvaccinated. But but they're not the but the people who think that they're unsafe aren't vaccinated are, are, are vaccinated. I'm just saying in terms of if we're talking about a quantitative population. Still, yeah, I know. So you've got you've got you've got psychos on the right and you've got psychos on the left. Uh, and so that they make up 70 million people. They're like mirror images of each other and they're both demented. And that's a lot of people. And they've both been surfaced uh, negatively and positively, however you want to select by this, by this disaster. Uh, so, and the psychological effects are going to go on for years. And again, as, 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 as you allude to Noah, as I've been saying in ways that we're not going to be able to see happening uh that things are going to happen political events are going to take place things are going to be uh, pub made public look at it this way let me just put it this way if what they're saying about putin that he has been wildly isolated for two years because he is a covid hysteric worried about being assassinated and in any case so he has like literally not been in a room with another person for two years and he's gone crazy Right. And no one he's he's gone nuts. And that's why he's so as Michael McFall says, he sounds unstable and this and that because of his extreme isolation, in part because of covid. This is the first Ukraine is the first covid war. I mean, if that's a real thing, just think about that for a minute. That's no joke. He 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 was he he made a bad set of calculations about going into Ukraine 
because he's isolated, because he's afraid of getting COVID, because he's also afraid that someone will use COVID as a biological weapon against him or something like that. And so he's sitting alone in rooms or at tables with people 25 feet away from him or whatever. Apparently that's who he is. He is a he is like the worst COVID hysteric that you've ever met. And this we could have this event and you know what would might 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 have made him better during this time would have been to have an x chair not that x chair would i'm sure x chair wouldn't want to sell its chair to putin right now uh, the way most uh, businesses seem not to want to uh, do business with uh, russia but you know uh, if if uh, if uh, putin uh, isn't completely insane if he sat down in his x chair his body would say so this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like most people don't look forward to sitting uh, in their office, but if they have an X chair, eh, things change. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? The X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? The X chair can with that LMAX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X chair. And let me tell you about the customized supportive X chairs patented dynamic variable lumbar. It means your back will never be happy in any other chair again. Uh, you know, high performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all reasons to love the X chair. So try it for yourself, risk-free for 30 days. You'll never go back. I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. X chair commentary. Com. Now, we got to go, but I did want to highlight a really, really important thing that happened last Friday, um, which uh, uh, in relation to the counter, yes, this, <laughs> there is a counter revolution. Um, federal judge uh, Claude Hilton, U.S. District Judge Claude Hilton, ruled last Friday that the new admission system for the prestigious magnet program in Fairfax County, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, discriminated against Asian American applicants and was therefore illegal and must end. Judge Hilton concluded that an effort to boost African American and Latino representation at TJ, as the school is known, constitutes an illegal act of racial balancing and the school's alterations to the admissions process, including eliminating a notoriously difficult test and choosing instead to evaluate students on experience factors, such as socioeconomic background, took place in a rushy, slopped, and opaque manner, and that, quote, emails and text messages between board members and high-ranking Fairfax County officials leave no material dispute that, at least in part, the purpose of the board's admissions overhaul was to, uh, was to change the racial makeup of Thomas Jefferson School to the detriment of African Americans. Can I, can I add that this started because parents led by Azra Nomani organized and filed a lawsuit about the school parents from the school. This was a this was partly a parent revolt about the the uh, school board doing this without any transparency and without any input from the people whose lives were affected by this. And she should be really that whole group of parents should be commended. And this is um, this is a case that the, the school didn't change its admissions policy until 2020. This this was born of that revolutionary year. There are other cases that, you know, we've written about and talked about, especially on the university level, um, where for years they have been trying to and successfully um, winnowing away at the the um, Asian American uh, portion of the student body. Um, of course, most notoriously at Harvard, which is that that case is going to go to the Supreme Court. Um, 
probably won't hear a ruling on it until next yeah. year. But this is this is the recourse that 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 you have. It is these things are illegal, at, in addition to being immoral. Anyway, it's uh, a piece of good news. Um, uh, more good news, I think, in this in this realm to come. Uh, the overreach uh, is stark. Um, we still haven't heard from Eric Adams and his new uh, uh, schools chancellor in New York City about how they're going to handle the eight selective schools in, in New York or what's going to happen with Boston Latin in Boston and some other places. But obviously there was the school board recall uh, in San Francisco um, that also uh, revolved around uh, this a- Asian American parents saying, don't destroy the opportunities for my children. We're going to do what's necessary to make sure that our children are protected. This is one of the most exciting things that's going on uh, in the United States and deserves to be highlighted. And we got to go. Uh, please enjoy the State of the Union and the 19 Democratic responses. Ordinarily, we have one <laughs> Republican response. But for some reason, uh, uh, Ilhan Omar is giving a response for some commie group and uh, somebody else is giving a response for the congressional. Rashida Tlaib is giving a response. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Rashida Tlaib is giving a response for, 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 for some Democratic Socialists. The Democratic Socialists. Uh, and then, group. yeah, and then uh, uh, somebody else is, is giving, giving a response for the, for the Congressional Black Caucus. Yeah. And who else? Gottheimer for the centrists. Oh, and Gottheimer. So there are going to be three Democratic responses to a Democratic State of the Union. So um, hashtag unity. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if you needed one simple uh, piece of evidence that um, that the Democratic Party was running off the rails uh, in, in as as the election in 2022 heads toward them, uh, I, I can't think of a better one. So it'll be an interesting. If only there was night. a word that described disorder, confusion, chaos, muddle. We just don't have a word that really accurately depicts what Democrats are up to these days. Not disarray? No, dare not say such a thing, John. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, and John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.